It is a great joy this morning to worship together, to worship Christ, to remember his goodness, his faithfulness, his love for us. And it is our special joy this morning to come and to partake of the Lord's table together. Communion is one of the only two ordinances that Jesus left for his church to practice. And it is the only ordinance that Jesus commanded the church to practice continually, repeatedly. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. And we have the joy and the privilege of doing that this morning, remembering Christ, remembering his work on the cross on our behalf. And as we prepare our hearts to do that, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the second chapter of the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. And as I was preparing my own heart for our time around the Lord's table, I was reflecting on how easily it is for us to remember or for us to forget the things that we ought to remember. I'm getting older now and I find myself, people ask me, Dan, how old are your kids? And I say, that's a good question. Let me ask them and find out. They say, when are your kids' birthdays? And I'll draw a blank. I don't remember. And there are certain things that just seem to pass me by now. And, um, and there are things that I tend to easily forget. And in a spiritual sense, what God says to us in his word is that we, as his people, are forgetful in nature. We are afflicted with the sin of forgetfulness. We easily forget the things that we ought to remember and we easily place as secondary in our lives the things that ought to be central. This is a sin that has afflicted the people of God, not just in the church today, but all throughout redemptive history. The sin that afflicted the people of Israel in the Old Testament was the sin of forgetfulness. They kept forgetting who God was, what he had done, the great work that he had accomplished in their lives as a nation, how he had rescued them from Egypt, how he had rescued them from slavery, how he had defeated Pharaoh's armies in the Red Sea. He had demonstrated his great power, his love, his faithfulness, his mercy, and yet, oh, how easily the people of Israel forgot the Lord. They forgot what he had done. They moved on from his salvation. They no longer placed as center of their lives the things that God had done and instead other things began to come to be center in their hearts and they moved on and they forgot the great things that God had done. God had even known that this was coming. He had instituted the Passover as a memorial to the great work of salvation that he had accomplished for them. He said, I want you to take the Passover annually in a continual way so that you will not forget, you will not forget me, you will not forget what I have done. And yet even with the Passover at the center of Israel's history, in their hearts, they forgot the Lord. They forgot his salvation. Deuteronomy chapter four, verse nine, God said to the people of Israel, only take care and keep your soul diligently lest you forget 
lest you forget the things your eyes have seen and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Oh, you as my people, you will so easily forget. You need to keep your soul diligently so that you will remember. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 23, God said, take care, take care, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you. And then catch this, when you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, you will make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. What happens when we are afflicted with the sin of forgetfulness is that eventually this leads to the sin of idolatry. We begin to place other things at the center of our lives and our affections besides the Lord our God who has loved us and who has saved us. Through the course of redemptive history, the people of God forgot the Lord Judges 8 verse 34 says this of the nation of Israel. It says that they did not remember the Lord their God. They did not remember him who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. I mean, God had been faithful to them. He had delivered them. He had shown his grace. He had shown his faithfulness time and time again in their lives. And yet, their tendency was to forget Psalm 78 verse 11 says, they forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. Verse 42, they did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from the foe, when he performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the fields of Zoan. And Psalm 106 verse 21 is even more direct. It says, they forgot God. They forgot God. Oh, this is the sin that has afflicted God's people throughout all the redemptive history, throughout all the course of time. It is the sin of forgetfulness. It is the sin of not remembering. It is the sin of placing other things as central in our hearts and our lives. It is the sin of becoming so consumed with the circumstances that are right before us. It is the sin of getting lost in all the details of our lives that we don't remember the Lord and his goodness to us, his faithfulness, his salvation, the great things that God has done. And when we forget the Lord our God, brothers and sisters, other things come into our lives and they become the center. We, like Israel, fall into the sin of idolatry when we fail to remember the great things that God has done for us. And you might be saying, Dan, well, that was Israel. That was Old Testament times. But I would bring you to the very purpose of this, the Lord's table. That Jesus said to the church, that I want you to take the Lord's table and I want you to do this in remembrance of me because Jesus 
knew that in the church age that we as New Testament Christians would be afflicted with the very same sin that is found in the Old Testament. Oh, we will forget. How quickly we forget. How quickly other things take the center of our lives and our attentions and our affections except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ in which he demonstrated his love for us. How quickly Jesus no longer becomes the center of our lives and we are consumed with other pursuits and we are consumed with other activities and whether it's work or career or schooling or relationships or marriage or parenting and these things become the consuming preoccupation of our lives and we've forgotten, we've forgotten the great love of Christ for us, the cross, and Jesus said, he knew on the eve of his death, he knew that though I will go to the cross and though I will stretch out my hands and though I'll be nailed to a piece of wood and though I will take the wrath of God on behalf of the church I love, they will forget. They will forget. They will move on and we will move on. Jesus gave to us the Lord's table so that we would not forget, so that we would remember. And brothers and sisters, there is remembering in your head and there is remembering in your heart. I mean, I remember that August 24th is the day of my anniversary. I mean, I remember that. That's on my Google calendar. And I can, my wife asked me, when's our anniversary? Yeah, it's August 24th, I remember. But there's remembering in your heart. Well, on August 24th, I remember my wife and the gift she is to me. And yeah, you can take the Lord's table in your head. You say, yeah, I remember Jesus and I remember what he did for me. Or with Paul, you can ask the Holy Spirit this morning to come and to lighten the eyes of your heart so that not only you Remember this in your head, but in your heart, you feel the weight of the great truths that Christ has died for your sins. And you remember Christ's love for you in a way where it sanctifies your heart from the idolatry that is always so present. That it sanctifies your heart from loving other things instead of Jesus that you want to love your work instead of Jesus. You want to love your family more than Jesus. You want to love your, your pursuits more than Jesus, your hobbies, your time, your freedom. You want to love these things. You want to place these things at the center of your life. And, and what we need to do as we take the Lord's tables, we need to remember the cross in such a way where it sanctifies our hearts from these kind of idolatries in which the, the remembrance of the work of Christ in our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit comes and has a purifying influence upon our hearts so that we can see clearly that Christ is everything. That he is not only the center of the universe, he is at the center of my heart and my life and my affections and I will live for him and all of life comes and, and takes this perspective. If we will remember, if we will remember, 
brothers and sisters, have you forgotten the Lord your God? Brothers and sisters, have you forgotten the cross in your own heart, in your own life? Has anything other than the cross of Jesus Christ, has anything other than his love for you taken the center of your heart and your mind, your affections, your purpose and direction, your goals in life, has anything else come and taken that place? Are you worshiping anything else except Christ? And if you are, then will you take this time to remember, to remember, to remember Christ? And will you allow the remembrance of this time not be a one-time event, but to carry on through the, the, the course of your everyday lives? Will you daily, on an everyday basis, take pains to rehearse the truths of what God has done for us in salvation, the truths of the gospel, the truths of Christ's love and his work on our behalf? Will you daily rehearse these things? on an ongoing way so that no, nothing else will take the place of the cross in my heart. No, no other pursuit, no other love, no other devotion will take the place of Christ in my heart. It will be Christ and him alone because I remember, I remember his love. I remember what he has done for me. As we come to Ephesians chapter two, we see that Paul has the very same concern Jesus did on the eve of his death. He is concerned that the church will quickly forget, that they will quickly forget the greatness of their salvation, that they will quickly forget the great things that God has done for them in displaying his grace and his mercy in their lives that, that they will not remember and that they will quickly move on. And he calls the church to remember, to remember, don't forget. Don't forget who you were. Don't forget how lost you were. Don't forget how dead you were. Don't forget the depths and the hopelessness to which, from which God has saved you. He calls on the church to remember grace. And I believe that remembering grace in this way is really, a, it's really an expression of repentance. It's really repenting of the dullness of our hearts. It's really repenting of the distractions in our lives. It's really repenting of the idolatry in our hearts and just saying, Lord, I want, I want these things to be so clear in my heart Lord, I want the Holy Spirit to show me these things in such a way that my eyes are enlightened, that my heart is flooded with spiritual light so that the clearest, most important truths that are found in the universe are the clearest and most important truths in my heart. Lord, it is a work of repentance to remember these things, to clear out the clutter, to clear out all the distractions, and to say, Lord, I need your spirit to help me remember. In verse one to three, Paul called us to remember our past. 
He called us to go back and remember the depths of sin from which we have been saved. And listen, I know there is many things going on in your life today. And I know there's many trials and many challenges that are before us. But listen, the key to dealing with what is before you is to remember what has been behind you. You will never be equipped to deal with life in the present until you have a clear understanding of what has happened to you in the past. So Paul says, I want you to remember, verse 1, you were dead in the trespass and sins in which you once walked. Well, brothers and sisters, don't forget how lost you were before Christ. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You had no spiritual life. You were a dead man walking. You had no capacity to see. You had no capacity to hear. You had no capacity to respond. You had no capacity to choose. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And then Paul says, don't forget how you express that spiritual deadness through the active disobedience in your life. He says, verse 2, you walked as a characteristic of your life. You walked in your trespasses and your sins. You were following, you were pursuing the course of the world. You lived for the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. You lived for the values of this present world system. This was your life. Verse 2, he says, you followed, you pursued the prince of the power of the air. You were enslaved to the devil. You were captive to do his will. He had a spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience and you were afflicted with that same spirit. You live, verse 3, in the passions of your flesh. You were carrying out the desires of the body and of your mind. You loved your sin. You loved your sin. You were, verse 3, passionate about your sin before Christ saved you. And then Paul says, verse 3, you were by nature children of wrath. You were children of wrath. You were under God's condemnation. You were under God's judgment. If God had not intervened in your life, you would have died and gone to hell. You would have faced the eternal wrath of God that burns in the lake of fire for all eternity. You were a child of wrath, and God abhorred your sin. He hated your sin. He was opposed to your sin and he promised to judge your sin. Have you forgotten 
the depths from which God has saved you? Have you somehow moved on from the glorious miracle that you are a Christian? Have you somehow become so afflicted with forgetfulness that you find yourself grumbling and complaining in the affairs of life? You find that this thing's wrong with life and this thing's wrong and this thing isn't going my way and this is what I want it to be and you've forgotten the miracle that it is just that you're saved. That you're a Christian. That God has redeemed you. He's forgiven you. Though you were once a child of wrath. Well, I think that we too easily forget who we were before Christ saved us. We go on with the Christian life. Maybe we clean up our acts a little bit and become a Christian. Maybe we stop drinking and smoking and partying and carousing and saying bad words and we start to feel a little bit good about ourselves. Then now we're good people. And God loves us because we have something to offer him. And God loves us because we deserve to be loved. And we've forgotten. We've forgotten who we were before Christ. We were children of wrath. That word wrath refers to God's settled indignation against the sinfulness of sin, God's holy hatred against sin. The word orge refers to the idea of swelling which eventually bursts. Jonathan Edwards wrote that the wrath of God is like great waters that are dammed for the present. They increase more and more. They rise higher and higher until an outlet is given. And once the floodgates open, the fierceness of his wrath rush forth with inconceivable fury and come upon man with omnipotent power. All we need to remember, this is what we deserved. All we need to remember that this is what we deserve today. All we need to remember that apart from the grace of God, each of us would be in hell this day, this very instant. And we need to remember that anything less, anything less than hell in our lives is grace. If you have received anything less than burning in hell because of the greatness of your sins against the holy God, that is grace. It is grace. It is undeserved favor. And if we're grumbling and complaining, then we have forgotten. We have forgotten. Zephaniah chapter 1 verse 2 says, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. The great day of the Lord is near, a day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation. And Paul says, remember that this is who you were. This is what you deserved. You were a child of wrath. Now as Paul takes us into the past, 
and he shows us who we were, he then moves in verse 4 to show us what God has done. What God has done when we were dead in our sins and how God has acted in the greatness of our salvation. And there are three things that Paul tells us that he wants us to remember. First, he wants us to remember who God is. Secondly, he wants us to remember what God has done. And then thirdly, he wants us to remember what God will do. And so let's take each of these three things together. First of all, Paul says he wants us to remember who God is. Who God is. Verse 4, Paul says, but God, which by the way are two of the most beautiful words in the Bible, but God. Well, we were dead in our sins, but God made us alive. We were lost in our transgressions, but God came and found us. We were enslaved to our sin, but God caused us to be free. These are two of the most beautiful words in all the Bible. They are the hinge upon which this passage turned. They not only turned the whole course of this passage, they turned the course of our eternal destinies. We were those who were headed for hell, but God intervened, but God acted in our lives. And Paul goes on in verse 4 to tell us who God is, and he says, but God, being Drink this in, being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us. Paul says he is a God of mercy. He is a God of love. This is who God is. And I want you to remember that. You say, Dan, I thought you said that God is a God of wrath. Yes, he is. I'm not taking anything back from last week's message. You say, Dan, I thought you said that God is a God of holy anger. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. He hates sin. He abhors sin. He abhors iniquity. But what Paul is showing us in verse 4 is that at the same time, at the same time, at the same time that God is a God of holy wrath, God is also a God of mercy and love. And it's not that God is competing dual personalities. It's not that part of him is loving and the other part is wrathful and these personalities are fighting each other and sometimes his personality of wrath wins out and sometimes his personality of love wins out and you know in the Old Testament his personality of wrath wins and the New Testament the personality of love wins. No, it is that all of these attributes are true of all of God. All of God is holy. All of God is filled with anger. All of God is wrathful. All of God is just and righteous. And at the same time, at the same time, all of God is filled 
with mercy, and all of God is great in love. This is who God is. This is his glorious character. That though he hates sin, and though his eyes cannot abide iniquity, and though his nature dwells in settled opposition to every sin that we have ever committed or will ever commit at the same time, his heart is moved with compassion. His heart is moved with mercy. His heart is filled with love. Paul says that God you'll notice he is rich in mercy. He is plusios, he is abounding, he is overflowing in mercy, he is overflowing in this idea of pity and compassion, of a heartfelt love for those who are in distress and trial. He looks at those who are suffering is the idea, and he is moved with emotion. And he saw us in our sin. And he was filled with mercy. Our God, Paul says, he's great in love. He's great in love. And there can be no greater demonstration of his love than this, that he set his love upon those who were dead. Who sets their love upon people who are dead? Who goes to corpses and say, I will now love you? God does. God does. He's not only rich in mercy, he is great in love. And would you notice that next phrase Paul says, because of the great love with which he loved us. That's personal. That's personal. It's not just that God is a vast, great ocean that, of love that is out there somewhere. It's, Paul makes it personal. The great love with which he loved us. He loved us when we were dead. He loved us when we were enslaved. He loved us when we were condemned. He loved us. He loved us. So Paul says, I just want you to remember who God is. Brothers and sisters, have you forgotten who God is? Brothers and sisters, have you forgotten how awesome our God is? Have you failed to rehearse in your heart his glorious attributes? I guarantee you that if you remember on a daily basis, if you rehearse the glorious attributes of God, if you just, in your heart, in your, in your prayer time, if you just take time to praise him for just who he is, just remember who he is, I guarantee you 
it will be a bomb to your soul. I guarantee you that your life's problems will be come into perspective. I guarantee you that your heart will be moved to peace because you know your God and you've remembered who he is. Paul says, dear Christian, remember who God is. And then secondly, he says, remember what he has done. He says, remember what he has done. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Verse five, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he, here's the key phrase, he made us alive together with Christ. He made us alive together with Christ. This verb refers to the sovereign initiative of God. This verb refers to the sovereign action of God. This verb refers to God doing the work. Theologians have taken this verb, he made us alive, and described this verb with the term monergistic regeneration, which is a big word, but let me impress this upon your heart. The term monergistic is very important. It describes what Paul is saying in verse five. Mono meaning one, and ergon meaning work. There is only one who does the work in the work of regeneration. Because dead man cannot do anything to make themselves come alive. We were dead. And God caused us to become alive together with Christ. The Bible refers to this work as the work of regeneration. The Bible refers to this work as the work of granting new birth. The Bible describes this work as the work of being born again. It is a sovereign work of God in which he imparts new life to the otherwise dead and hopeless sinner. And verse four says that God imparts this new life because of his mercy and because of his love. The new birth is not some dry, abstract theological concept. The new birth is God's expression of his heart of love and mercy. He made us alive. He made us alive. One of my favorite illustrations of the miracle of the new birth is found in the book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament. In the book of Ezekiel chapter 37, God takes Ezekiel to a valley. And it's almost like a scene out of the Lord of the Rings or of the Hobbit. He's in this great valley and the valley is filled with dry bones. You can imagine skeletons strewn all throughout the valley and God says to Ezekiel, he asks him this question. He says, Ezekiel, can these bones live? 
And Ezekiel's looking at these bones. He's looking at these skeletons. And he answers the Lord. He says, Lord, you know. You know. And God says to Ezekiel, I want you to preach to these bones. I want you to take the message of my word and I want you to preach to these skeletons. I want you to proclaim to these dead, dry bones the message of the Lord. Ezekiel, you are a prophet. Go preach to these bones. And Ezekiel, out of obedience, he goes to these skeletons, and you can imagine it now. He says to these skeletons, he says, hear the word of the Lord. O dead and dry bones, hear the preaching of the word of God. And verse 7 records this amazing scene. It says that as Ezekiel preached, there was a sound. Behold, there was a rattling and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And Ezekiel kept preaching. He prophesied. He prophesied to these bones. And it says that breath came into them and they lived. And they stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Now, I would have paid a lot of money to have been there on this day to see this great, amazing miracle, Ezekiel preaching to skeletons and they come alive because of the word of God. And yet, as we look at the church of Jesus Christ, as I look at Cornerstone Bible Church this morning, do I see anything really all that different? But dead men who have come alive because of the preaching of God's word. Paul says, I want you to remember what God has done. God has imparted to your heart a divine supernatural light. God has called you as Lazarus out of the tomb to come alive in him. God has granted you, Titus chapter 3 says, the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 3, that God has caused you to be born again. And as if that wasn't enough, Paul tells us in verse 6 that after God has made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, he then, note this, raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now I'm almost embarrassed to keep going because this is almost, this is too much. I mean, it'd be enough, Lord, just 
let me live and I'll go in some corner of heaven somewhere and you can give me some dishes to wash and at least I'm not in hell and at least I'm not in the lake of fire and just, just, just remove condemnation but, and I'll be satisfied. This is almost too much. You mean to say that not only did God love us when we were dead, not only did God reach into our lives and make us alive, but having made us alive to be born again, he then united us with the person of Jesus Christ so that where Jesus Christ is, we are also? This is exactly what Paul is saying in verse 6. He's already told us back in chapter 1, verse 20, that God raised up Jesus, that God seated Jesus in the heavenly places at the right hand of the Father, far above all authority and rule and power. We already know that God exalted Jesus. What Paul is telling us in verse 6 is that when God raised up Jesus, God raised us up with him as well. That when God seated Jesus at the right hand of the Father, God seated us with Jesus at that exalted place. That we are so united and identified with the Lord Jesus Christ that in a very real sense, where he is is where we are also. And that when he died, we died with him. When he rose, we rose with him. And when he ascended, we ascended with him. And we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Paul says, don't forget, don't ever forget not only who God is, but what he has done. Don't ever move on from these great and glorious realities. Rehearse them daily. Call them to mind. Preach them to yourself and preach them to others. Never move on. Never let the wonder of your salvation diminish with time. Paul says, remember who God is. He says, remember what God has done. And then thirdly, Finally, he says, remember what God will do. Remember what God will do. He says in verse seven, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, one that we could spend weeks just unpacking the meaning of this verse, Paul says, God did all this, why? So that in the coming ages, in the long succession of ages which are to come, which stretch forth as far as the eye or the imagination can see, God did all of this so that in the coming ages, he might show or he might demonstrate the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. 
Paul is saying here is that the grace that God has shown us in the past has a view to the grace that he will show us in the future. There is so much grace we've experienced in the past. The grace of our forgiveness, the grace of regeneration, the grace of being born again, the grace of adoption, the grace of being blessed with every spiritual blessing. We have received so much grace, grace upon grace, and yet Paul says, you know what? It's just the beginning. There is more grace to come. In the ages which are to come, so that in the coming ages he might show. I read theologians who have pondered the meaning of this verse and they have concluded, theologians like Jonathan Edwards who have concluded that the showing or the demonstration in verse seven must be a demonstration that is progressive in nature. It cannot be that God, we get to heaven and at one point in time, God demonstrates his grace in a way where he exhausts all that needs to be seen. But pondering and reasoning from the infinity of God and the infinity of his attributes and the greatness of his grace, which goes on without end, they have reasoned that the showing or the demonstration of the riches of God's grace must be a progressive demonstration that continues for all eternity. In other words, that in the coming ages, in the hundreds of years which are to come, when we are in heaven and when we are in eternity, there will never be a point in heaven where we have seen all that can be seen. There will never be a point in heaven where we have learned all that there is to learn. There will never be a point in heaven where God's grace will have been exhausted and the demonstration is now over because there's all, we've seen all that needs to be demonstrated. But given the fact that this demonstration must be progressive in nature, that it will unfold through the coming ages of time, that there will be a continual learning and growing and understanding and apprehending and beholding and delighting in further manifestations and further expressions of the grace of God which has not been expressed in the same way in the past. Paul is showing us that if you think that God's grace in the past is amazing, just wait till you get to heaven. I mean, it's gonna knock your socks off. We will forever be learning and growing and understanding 
greater, understand, greater manifestations of the grace of God in heaven. And the reason why this demonstration will never come to an end is because the grace of God in his attribute of his grace is infinite in nature. Theologian Sam Storms has written this about our future in heaven. He said that there will never come a time in heaven when we will know all that can be known. There will never come a time in heaven where we will enjoy all that can be enjoyed. We will never plumb the depth of gratification of God or reach its end. Our satisfaction and delight in joining Him will be subject to incessant increase. When it comes to heavenly euphoria, words such as termination and cessation and expiration and finality will be utterly and absolutely inappropriate as our ideas and thoughts of God will increase in heaven. And so our joy and our delight and our fascination will be. God did all of this so that he could show us in the future how great and how measurable his grace really is. And I say this to those who are like me, weary pilgrims in this world. I say this to those who still battle, even with our redeemed nature, we still battle with the world and the flesh and the devil. I say this to those who feel sometimes we live in a world that is a dry and weary land that is without water, that we walk this narrow road that leads to the celestial city, that one day our faith, that it will be sight. And one day this body of sin will become a new glorified body. And one day we will see Jesus face to face. And on that day, when we enter into the presence and the joy of our master, and we hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant, no, it will not be the end. It will not be the conclusion. It will only be the beginning of a glorious new life in which we will forever be experiencing the grace of God as he demonstrates this grace in our lives in eternity. Oh, brothers and sisters, will you remember your God? Will you remember his salvation? Will you remember the cross? Will you repent this morning of your distractions, your hurriedness, the, a mind that is cluttered with just things you need to do, will you ask the Lord to help you with your dullness? Would you ask the Holy Spirit to come flood your heart with life, with life and light? Will you remember the greatest truths in the universe which center around our salvation and the work Christ has done for us 
And will you remember these truths in such a way where what is center is at the center of the universe, what is at the center of the Bible, what is at the center of this passage would also be at the center of your heart. By grace, by grace, we have been saved. Though we were once were dead, we have been made alive in Christ. Would you bow with me in prayer? Let's close our time and ask the Lord to bless us as we come to the Lord's table this morning. Our Father, we thank you for this time of remembrance. Lord, this is our greatest need this morning in our hearts and in our lives is that we would not forget your salvation, that we would not forget who you are, that we would not allow idols to come and to take center place in our lives, but that we would remember who you are, that we would remember what you have done, that we would remember what you will do in the ages which are to come. Well, Lord Jesus, we thank you for the Lord's table. We want to do this in remembrance of you. As we take of the bread, we want to remember your death on the cross. We want to remember how your hands and your feet were nailed on that tree and how the holy wrath of God that we so richly deserve was poured out instead upon you, our substitute. We want to sit at the feet of the cross once again with wide-eyed wonder at the greatness of your sacrifice. And as we take of the cup, we want to remember your blood, the blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sins, the blood which now cleanses us from all of our sins, the blood that is sufficient to cover all sins. Lord, help us to remember Help us not to forget. Clear away the clutter. Clear away the distractions in our minds. Pray this time would be a time of worship and of praise. We ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.